You know, I think if we um, just woke up every morning and sang, Lord, I need you, we would, we would be in better stead to start our day, don't you think? To just recognize that um, we are not as cool as we think we are. But God is cooler than we can imagine. Brenda and I missed you last week. We were um, in Southern California. We were in, actually in San Diego. Sometimes I wonder if San Diego is claimed by the rest of the L.A. Basin. Um, but uh, whether or not they like, they like it, it's still the best place in Southern California. Uh, one of the things we learned while we were there is that in Southern California, they do not know what to do when it rains. Um, it rained. Uh, I, I was watching the news to kind of because they were saying the rain was coming in, and I was watching the news to uh, kind of see what we were to expect because they seemed a little angsty about it. And the, uh, the the newscaster got up there, the weather person got up there, and he said, uh, he said it's going to rain. It's going to rain really a lot and hard over the next 48 hours. We're going to have between a half an inch and an inch of rain. And I thought, 48 hours. They're laughing at you in Seattle and Portland today. And, and, uh, and sure enough, over the next 48 hours, they had between a half an inch and an inch of rain, and there were floods everywhere. The little tiny San Diego Creek, which I, I promise you is no larger than the, the straight portion of this stage normally, was overflowing its banks and about 40 feet across and running over bridges and onto golf courses and stuff. And I just... I just looked at it and thought, this, this is just crazy. This can't be. But I suppose when it doesn't rain often, you don't make plans for rain. You know, maybe I think that, that sometimes we, we don't have the pouring rain of the Holy Spirit because we don't make plans for rain. You know? We have no capacity to hold it, so God can't send it. We're, I, we just don't have a space for it. So maybe... Uh, Maybe some, some stretching of ourselves and making some room, some capacity. We were at the One Project. I don't know what, you, uh, what your thoughts are about the One Project. I will tell you that I have heard a lot of things about it that are not true. I've heard people who have never been there talk about things as if they had been. And um, I have been there. The first, first one of these happened about seven years ago. And it was an invitation thing. It was uh, call your friends and invite them and, and, uh, to, to come. And at that uh, gathering, the, sort of the, the reason for the one project was stated as clearly as I think it ever has been, uh, and that was simply this, that to recognize and to assert and continue to push forward the value that Jesus Christ is the center of all we do and the central figure in Adventism. And I don't think there is a better description of the way things are supposed to be. That if Jesus is not the center, then what are we? And where are we? Um, and I, I thought there were two really good things in that very first one. It was in Atlanta. Um, it was over Super Bowl weekend. I think that was because hotels are cheap on Super Bowl weekend, if it's not the town where the Super Bowl is. And it was in Atlanta, and the one of the first speakers got up and said uh, something that I've shared with you, and I just want to remind you about, that in 1844, when the Millerites were waiting for the coming of Jesus, they were not waiting for a math problem to be solved. Sometimes we treat it as if it's a prophetic math problem waiting to be solved. They were not waiting for a prophetic math 
problem out of the book of Daniel to be solved. They were waiting for the coming of Jesus. There is no more central activity than to be expectant of the second coming. And then uh, another person got up and they were sharing the the historical perspectives of of the church and the second person said, uh, do not forget that the very first thing that was revealed to a young 17-year-old woman in the midst of that congregation, not just shocking everybody, was a picture of the people, that, that those folks who had been waiting during the Millerite movement, walking up a path that was narrowing as it climbed. And as that path got narrower and narrower, that the, the, the key, the secret to staying on the path all the way to the kingdom was one thing, keeping your eyes on Jesus. And so I, I think that that's a, re- a real reasonable thing to be doing. If you have questions about it or you're concerned for my salvation, please come talk to me or send me an email. Um, but I am telling you, it is one of the best things happening in our denomination right now. I truly believe that it is. This one, uh, this one was not as great as some of the others I've gone to. I'll be honest. There were a couple of people I wish hadn't talked but in general, the other, t- uh, the other nine or ten folks were awesome. And I, and I can just be honest with you because you're my friends, right? There were a couple of folks I really wish hadn't talked, but the rest were awesome. And so uh, if you have questions or interest in it, let me know and I'll, I'll share with you what I know about the, the, the one project itself. Today, we are talking about the disciple who didn't make the cut. You know, we've been talking about the accessibility of discipleship, right? Everybody in this group, they're just, they're all just there like us. This one may be a little too much like us. This morning, we are going to talk about Judas. So I wore appropriate attire. John chapter 12, verse 6, that actually shouldn't be a quotation mark. I meant to change that. I saw it, was going to change it, and then forgot to. Jesus or Judas being described by John a hundred years later, or about 70 years later, reflecting on what had happened with them, John states that simple thing about Judas, he was a thief, and he had the money box. Let me ask you a question. Would you put a thief in charge of the money box? The disciples, apparently, when when they agreed to let him be in charge of the money box, didn't know that he was a thief. Did Jesus? Would Jesus put a thief in charge of the money box? Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Judas Iscariot did not betray Jesus in a mad rush of mania. It took a series of small decisions. It took a series of small, or at least seemingly small, decisions. A little introduction. He was born early in the first century as with all of these guys. He's from the town of Cariath in southern Judah. It's a big deal. That's an important thing. We'll come back to it in a minute. He's one of the 12 disciples. Now, can we stop and remember this? When we think of Judas, we, have, we extract him from three years with Jesus. And we sat him aside as if he wasn't there when they fed the 5,000. You know, the other disciples were passing out bread and fish, and Judas was standing on the sidelines saying, not me, I'm not really one of these guys. 
He was there when they raised, when he, the widow of Nain's son, laying on a pyre, was being carried out of the city to be buried. Jesus stops his disciples along the road, raises this child back to life, hands him back to his mother. He was there outside of Lazarus' tomb, just like everybody else. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. He lived with Jesus for three years. He saw and participated in the miracles of Jesus, went out with the other disciples and was able to perform miracles himself in Jesus' name. I I, want to reorient us with Judas because, because of his last acts, we've tossed everything else aside. For the three years he spent with Jesus, he was always going to be seen as one of the group, right? Everywhere Jesus went, from the wedding feast at Cana to the outside Lazarus' tomb to the miraculous entrances that he makes into the, the city riding on a donkey, everywhere Jesus went, Judas is present. All of the time that Judas is busying himself in, a, in, in a, a similar way to the rest of the disciples, Jesus knows what's coming. Judas was Jesus' evangelism project among the twelve. Judas was probably the best resume in the group from what we can tell. Judas was from the right part of Israel. Do you remember where everybody else is from largely? Galilee. There are a bunch of Galileans. And Jesus, he's from the worst city in Galilee. Jesus is from the hood, if there's a hood. He's from Nazareth. Remember what the statement is about Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He lived on the other side of the other side of the tracks. Galilee was the other side of the tracks. People from Galilee said he lived on the other side of the tracks. Most of these guys are Galileans. This guy is a Judean. He's legit. He was smart enough to handle the money. Now stop there for a sec. How much do these guys trust each other? When you look at the disciples and their interactions, do they look like a bunch of guys who were volunteering for somebody else to have a role of responsibility? No, never. Not ever. And yet they hand the money bag over to this guy. That means within the group they saw him as a valued partner. They saw him as somebody who was a sort of a cut above the rest of them. As he is one of the 12 disciples, I want you to catch, um, we're going to skip a piece of the list, but we'll catch a a, a chunk of it as well. This is Jesus sending them out two by two. When he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits. He gave them power to cast them out, to heal all manner of sicknesses and diseases. All 12 disciples, including... Judas got the power, the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Were the disciples actually successful in this? Yeah, if you keep reading the book, you find out they come back and they report, it's amazing, all these great things happen, demons were cast out in your name, it's amazing. In 
Jesus' name, they did all these things. Now, the Bible doesn't say 11 of them were doing really good, and that guy, the partner of you know, Bartholomew, he wasn't so awesome. Doesn't say so. And as much as they are happy to let us know the character of this man when the gospel writers later write the story, don't you think they would have told us? You know, 11 of us were doing fine, and Judas, he, you know, he hung out at the coffee shop the whole time, didn't do nothing. Right? Never knocked on a single door. The list then, carrying through all of those, picks up, I'll pick it up with James, James, son of Alphaeus. Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot. And what does Matthew add? Who also betrayed him. Judas Iscariot cast out demons, healed sicknesses and diseases in the name of Jesus, and also betrayed him. Understand, please understand, that up until the last few days, if Judas had died before he betrayed Jesus, if Judas had died before he betrayed Jesus, we would all assume that he was one of the best disciples. Right? If we had, if we had not known the last little bit we would all have said, hey, they left him in charge of the money. He was there in, for, in all these places. He was obviously quite an insightful guy. Look at the questions he's asking. You know, he, he's concerned about the poor. Wouldn't we have expected, if Judas had died before the betrayal, that he was one of the best disciples? You see, when you make a series of quiet decisions, not everybody knows what's going on. In fact, if if you're struggling with your faith, you, you want to keep it a little quiet, don't you? If you're in the midst of that group hanging out with this guy, wouldn't you want to keep it completely under your hat? Here's the disciple who's questioning. Here's the disciple who's actually bringing a little dissension into the ranks. Here's Judas. And up to the last few days, no one really knows what's going on behind the scenes with him. There's a turning point in John chapter 6. Now, I don't know if you've read John chapter 6. It's a really long chapter in, in the book of John. There's a lot going on. Jesus has, has fed the 5,000. They've crossed the sea. A bunch of people find them on the other side. They say, hey, dinner was cool. Can we do breakfast? And Jesus says, no. You're not, you just came here to get a meal. We're not doing that. He said, those who are following me must eat my body and drink my blood. And it freaks everybody out. And as they start to get worried and they start to back up, we pick the story up. It's down near the end of the chapter. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you going to leave? The disciples are now watching people sort of thin out. Imagine what it would be like. A giant crowd of people has come to see Jesus. And then he's making these statements and it's offending people. Do you think the disciples, well, well, do we know the disciples to ever tell Jesus what you're saying is offensive to people? We do. Peter stands up and speaking for all says, hey, hey wait a second, you're, you're, you're making the Pharisees mad. Stop it. 
Hey, don't bring up this question about the death and resurrection. No, we don't, that, we're not going there. We're not letting you die. Here, as the disciples, the twelve, are watching the crowd thin out and thin out and thin out, and people are getting back in their boats and they're going away and they're grumbling and the crowd is getting quieter and softer and fewer and fewer people are there. And now he turns to the last of the twelve who are just standing there looking at the crowd leave. And he says, are you guys leaving? Peter then speaks one of the best things he says in the Bible. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? Now isn't that a great spiritual place to dwell? Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You you are the, the only hope we have. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Where would we go? What would we replace you with? What, how, we couldn't just leave you and be the same. We, we can't leave you and, 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 and not be affected. Where would we go? Lord, where would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. All 12 of them are standing there. We know because of what Jesus says next. Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. The whole time he knew. The whole time he knew. I want you to picture something for a minute. Jesus walks into the upper room. Nobody picks up the basin and the towel. His seat is clear. It's the seat at the head of the table, sort of the center of everything. To his left, Judas has taken that seat only because John got the seat to the right too quickly. The others have spread themselves out. Peter sitting next to John trying to get as close as he can to the seat of authority. We don't really know the rest of the order. Jesus takes off his outer garment, wraps a big towel around himself, picks up the basin, and starts washing the feet of the disciples. Does he skip Judas? Uh -uh. From disciple to disciple, Jesus goes. He washes feet. And he prays. Not, Not out loud, but like you and I would pray in a setting like that. Passionately, hopefully. Lord, please, This is big mouth Peter. Help him not to get himself in too much trouble. Help him to learn to turn down the volume and think before he speaks. Lord, this is John. He's a great guy. Full of love. But so innocent. So easily harmed. Protect him, God. Father, this is Judas. They don't know what we know. But there's still a chance. Bring the full authority of the Holy Spirit. Convert him. Break the hold that sin has on him. Release him. Free him. Father, please. Jesus knows who this is. 
when he lets him join the group. And Jesus puts him in charge of the money because that's where Judas' weakness lies. He wants Judas to be, to be confronted with the sacredness of what he holds in his hand so that he might face and overwhelm and overcome that temptation. The apparent trigger moment is pretty clear in Scripture. It's a dinner party after the resurrection of Lazarus. It's six days before the Passover. It's uh, maybe a few days since Lazarus was resurrected. Now, can you imagine how crazy things are in Bethany? It's a small town. People are are pressing in from all over the area, from Jerusalem and from Bethlehem. People are coming to Bethany with one real reason. They're not coming to see Jesus. They're coming to see Lazarus. People who knew Him, people who don't know Him, people who believe in Jesus, people who don't have any real faith in Jesus, they're coming to see what must have gone on. And they're, they're filing into Bethany. Six days before the Passover, and you read this in all of the Gospels so you can pick up some content, a man who had been a leper named Simon, who is also a Pharisee, decides to throw a a dinner party there in the small town of Bethany. He calls the best caterer in town, the best cook in town apparently, and that's Martha, the sister of the now famous Lazarus. Apparently, the younger sister, Mary, has not been invited. At least not by him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead. Whom he had raised from the dead. Do you remember who was present? Twelve disciples. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, you think about it. Lazarus is probably going to dinner party after dinner party after dinner party after dinner party. Right? He's being invited over to everybody's house. He's been to the mayor's house. You know, he's been to the, to the rabbi's house. He's been to everybody's house. Everybody wants to see and talk to Lazarus. Because how many people do you know who were dead and are now alive? When you want to have him over to your house to find out what happened, there you go. They keep talking. He keeps talking. They keep asking the same questions. He's sitting around the table. The questions are familiar now. Hey, what was that like? Well, you know, I, I was there, and, and I was sick, and I felt horrible, and then I died, and everything stopped. And then I was apparently in the grave for a long time. My sister said it was terrible smell when they rolled the stone away like a sister would. And then, and then I heard Jesus' voice and I got up and I felt fine. I felt better than fine. And I'm standing there trying to find my way out and breathe through this cloth. And somebody comes along and pulls off the cloth and there's Jesus. That's all I got. It's cool. That's all I got. Well, in the midst of the dinner party, the uninvited shows up. 
Ever had a dinner party where the wrong person came? Everybody's uncomfortable. Sometimes, except for the person who's not supposed to be there, they seem to be okay with the fact that they've crashed the dinner party. Not only has she come, she's come on a mission. It appears she's come on a mission guided by the Holy Spirit. And as she comes, she takes a pound. Now, ladies, you understand this, gentlemen. Unless you've tried to buy perfume, you don't. So if you want to figure this out, go to Nordstrom. Don't even go anywhere else. Just go to Nordstrom because you need the sticker shock to understand this. Go to the cologne, perfume, whatever counter. Ask them to see the perfume. They're going to try to sell you on cologne. They're going to try to give you eau de toilette, which is just a terrible name. (laughs) Ask to see the perfume. The bottles are larger to smaller, and the prices are smaller to larger. Big bottles of eau de toilette, little tiny bottles of perfume, this for 20 bucks, this for 200 Because when it's concentrated and just in oil, that very expensive perfume brought down to the tiniest, just the most densely packed aromas in that oil, that's the good stuff. She brings a pound of the good stuff. Okay? She anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, have you ever been in a room with someone who has too much cologne or perfume on? When we were in San Diego, we got on the elevator after a guy, it's clearly a guy or a woman wearing men's, men's cologne, a guy who had had much too much on had been in that elevator. We walked in the elevator, no, long, no, no telling how long it had been, how many up floors it had gone up and down before we stepped in. But when we stepped in, he was still there. The essence of him was still there. You know how that works, right? You, it just fills a place. When she opens this thing, when she breaks open this box, it fills the house. The smell is going to hang in the draperies for weeks. It's going to be on Jesus' body all the way to the resurrection. I wonder if it made it to heaven. At the cross, at the trial, at every step from this point to the resurrection, this oil of spikenard is smell is carrying with Jesus. And there's a whole big picture. This is the essence of the smell of a king. And everywhere he goes, he smells like a king. Think of how much odor brings memory to you and how it sticks with you and how it hangs everywhere Jesus goes. She has marked him as the ruler of the universe. This girl whose reputation is so bad that they're not even inviting her when her brother and sister are invited. That Simon will say to himself around the table, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't be letting her touch him. She's that woman. She pours this oil over his feet and she takes down her hair. Another socially awkward moment. 
and begins to wipe it because in her rush, she forgot to bring a towel. Do you know who smells like Jesus the rest of the week? And for weeks to come. It's not Peter. It's Mary. And the whole house smells like Jesus. And when she goes to the tomb on the resurrection morning, she smells like Jesus. And when she goes back to the upper room to tell the disciples and Peter what she's discovered, she smells like Jesus. We pass over this like crazy night at a party. (laughs) No. The anointing of the Messiah for his trial and death and resurrection. The preparation of Jesus' body for his burial. That's what's going on at this dinner party. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Love the biblical understatement. One of his disciples, Judas, from the town of Cariot, not far away from here, Simon's son, who would betray him, John's making sure we know who we're dealing with, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? This is a year's wages. So you can tag whatever your year's wages are onto the price of this perfume. And given to the poor. John will make a comment, which we're going to skip, but John says he didn't really want to give it to the poor. But let me ask you a question. If we did not know about the betrayal, what would you have thought of this comment? This is a very high-minded thing to say. Man, we shouldn't have done this. We should have sold this, given it to the poor. They need it more than we do. They, I mean, this is kind of wasteful. A couple of drops would have been enough for the week. We would have thought much differently of this phrase, wouldn't we? Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. I think it may be that first phrase that sets Judas to his final decision. Let her alone. Something in the tone of Jesus' voice. Something about being called out and embarrassed. I mean, if this was going to turn Peter, Peter's been embarrassed 40 times by now at least. Something in being called out in this manner just is the straw that breaks the camel's back. We don't find it in the book of John, but in Mark 14, the same story, we then find this. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad. 
And they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might. Look at the next word. Conveniently betray him. Let's not make this too hard on me. If I'm going to betray Jesus, I want it to be at a time when it's easy. I think the devil would give you that opportunity. Oh, yeah. So what was the value of Jesus? What did he value Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. Or half a year's wages. Half the value of the box of perfume. Interesting. The, the woman of ill repute, she sees the value of Jesus as more than a year's wages. His, his waffling disciple is willing to settle for half of that. We know some things about Judas. Judas has a problem with money. Right? The disciples apparently, after everything is all over, they realize that Judas has been carrying the wallet around with him the whole time. They apparently do an audit or something because up to this point, there's no comment. It's always an after statement. He was a thief. He was a thief. He was a thief. It's always an, an, an ancillary add-on. That, by the way, he was. By the way, he was. By the way, he was the betrayer. By the way, he was the thief. Apparently, after they got all said, all was said and done, they either talked or somebody looked in the bag to see how much money should be in there and found out the money wasn't in there. And they declare, oh, Judas is a thief. Is a problem with money a bygone thing? Or is it still there today? And you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter how much you make. Problems with money don't depend on your income. They depend on your attitude. Poor people can have just as big a problem as middle income people, or biggest, just as big a problem as heavy income people. It doesn't matter. A problem with money is not about money. Never has been. Judas has a problem with money. Judas has come up with a better plan than Jesus' plan. Now, if you examine the plan, just on the sake of the plan, it's a good plan. It's almost foolproof. Consider, he's going to make Jesus show his lordship. How do you do that? You betray him and you get paid for it. And you force him to show that he is God. Ironclad. Right? Judas has been present when Jesus has been, when people have attempted to capture Jesus before. What happens every time? He just walks right on through. He never is allowing himself to be captured. So this is pretty ironclad. Jesus has never allowed himself to be taken captive before, so it doesn't matter. He collects his 30 pieces of silver, sends the guards to go get Jesus, Jesus walks through the guards. No problem. And he still gets to keep 
his 30 pieces of silver. No problem. Pretty good plan. Force Jesus to show his hand. If he is taken captive, if they do crucify him, it will prove what Judas has been wondering for a long time. Is he really the Messiah? Because the Messiah would not allow this. So Judas' plan is ironclad. He gets paid. Jesus reveals himself. And if Jesus doesn't reveal himself to be Lord, it's good because certainly Judas doesn't want to be in on this bargain if this isn't actually God. And Judas walks away. 30 pieces of silver and a solid answer. Ever had a plan for God? Have you ever come to God with an ironclad plan? Have your prayers ever been a to-do list for God? Have you ever said to God, this is the way this has to go, this is what should happen now, and we're absolutely certain you were right? I have. I have some before God right now that I have a pretty determined outcome I'm asking for. And I have not given up. And I keep going at it. And sometimes I'm a bit demanding. Maybe I should be a little more humble. It is God after all. The disconcerting reality of small choices is that small choices lead to, lead to a changed life. The, the opportunity to sit on the fence doesn't really exist. We make choices every day that give us a side to land on. And as we make those small choices that don't seem that significant today, the question for those small choices is, do they have a direction? Because if they have a direction, maybe we should be considering that. Judas didn't jump off the bandwagon with Jesus all of a sudden. It took three years of choices and thought and consideration and planning. Now he had come up with the ironclad plan. Good strategist. Frankly, if this were your business, if you were making a business decision here and you were getting paid half a year's wages, you're going to get paid half a year's wages. And the decision that you're forcing here is going to either prove the concept or kill the concept. Where's the loss? Right? You're either going to shortcut your losses by ending this concept now, or you're going to prove the concept and carry forward. So that's really what this is. It's a great strategic business move. He's been led to this. A long time. 
by small decisions and small questions about Jesus. You know, with the feeding of the 5,000, why do you just let those people turn him into a king? What's wrong with him? You know, these disciples of yours will fight for you every day all the way to their last breath. Peter said it to you. He's carrying a sword around with him. He means it. you got a zealot in this group. You know how many friends these zealot guys have? Come on, Jesus. Step up. I know what the text says, and I know it says you're going to be the king of Israel, and you're going to kick out the Romans, and we're going to win. It's going to be awesome. Proof of concept. Or proof of falsehood. So I want to leave you with this last bit. How are you managing the T's? How are we managing the T's? How are we managing time, talent, and treasure? What are the small decisions we're making about our time and where we invest it? What are the small decisions we're making about our talent and how we use it? What are the small decisions we're making about our treasure and what we do with it? How are we managing time, talent, treasure? Every day we make decisions about these three things. Every single day. Little decisions here and there, here and there. What's for traje- what? Hmm. What's the trajectory of those decisions in your life? If, you were to, if this were your acid test right now, if you were to, to open your checkbook, open your date book, if you were to look at, look at your own skill sets and how you use them, if you were to say, here's my time, my talent, and my treasure, how am I managing those? What's the trajectory of that decision right now? If you're looking at it, if you're figuring it out, don't tell anybody, but just in your, own, in your own personal audit, what's the trajectory of those decisions for you and for me today, right now? And how does it reflect the decisions I'm making? And should I make a change? So Judas is a, is a tragedy of a story. Because he didn't just suddenly run away from Jesus. He didn't just give up because it got too scary. In fact, this is a courageous decision he's making. He didn't quit because the the, the commitments were too high. If Jesus proves himself to be the Messiah, I I think Judas is right there with a sword standing next to Peter. But he just began to believe he knew better. He just began to believe he knew better how to manage messianic opportunity than Jesus did. Small decisions. Small questions. Let's pray. Father God, it's so easy for me to not take some things that I'm doing seriously. To believe that it's just a small decision. It's just not a big deal. This investment of time, that use of talent. Father, as I, as I make these decisions,
I, I ask for your Holy Spirit's leadership. Lord, in the reflection of Judas in the Scriptures, I see myself. So often thinking that I have an idea, maybe a better idea than yours. So often frittering away opportunities to be in your presence and understand your call. I pray for your forgiveness for those decisions that we have made that have been leading us away from you. I pray for the power and authority of your Holy Spirit and his submission of our will to take us in a direction that we might head home with you. We surrender our plan, our expectations, and choose to trust you today. In Jesus' name.